Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 97, recorded on February 20th of 2020. Uh, it's a fun date for you. I've been typing it wrong all day. Uh, with me today is a um, uh, a guest that I've had on before to talk geeky photo stuff about, and I've always valued his opinion uh, and his sensibilities and the, the eloquentness and the way that he describes his opinions. Uh, Shiv Verma is with me again today, um, who is also involved in a lot of the same projects. And uh, uh, so, Shiv, uh, it's been months since we've really spoken, and I'm surprised it's taken that long. What have you been up to? Well, <laughs> First and foremost, Don, thank you for that introduction. I mean, it's always a pleasure. Um, what have I been up to? Uh, lots of things. I think uh, the most important thing that I've been working on is the uh, introduction of the platy ball. And I wish I had a unit today just to, to hold in my hand and describe it and show it. But it's, um, it's a product that's absolutely uh, a game changer, in my opinion. And uh, hopefully in the opinion of people who have been so kind enough to back the project. Um, you know, we, we are definitely looking for more backers and we have 24 days to go. So, uh, you know, we should achieve all our goals by then. But really what it is, it's a uh, completely redesigned ball head uh, that uh, is, if I can say it, it's upside down. And <laughs> in a good way, <laughs> in a good way. Yes. So the advantage of that is that unlike most ball heads where you, you know, put a ball head on a tripod and if the tripod isn't level and if you don't have a leveling bowl, then you're basically out of luck if you're going to try and do any kind of a panorama. With this particular ball head, you can level it and the elite model actually has an electronic leveling system, uh, not a system, but a leveling indicator that uh, once leveled, it's accurate to within about half a degree, uh, you have a panning base that is not going to be tipping and tilting and messing up your panoramas. But what I found, the other interesting thing is that like most ball heads, which you can you know take the uh, the Arca Swiss uh, clamp mechanism and mm -hmm. tip it sideways to have, you know, your uh, orientation in the portrait mode or what I call vertical orientation. Uh, with this particular ball head, if you put it into that orientation, you can now do panoramas vertically. And yeah. that, that is, that is most, you know, interesting. And uh, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, I can play with, one of the prototype units next week uh, while we're at WPPI and do what's known as a vertorama in one of those uh, Las Vegas buildings. So that, that, that would be, be very fun. cool. Yeah. Well, and, and so, I had my hands on an earlier prototype of the, uh, the, the Platy Ball as well from Platypod, uh, who I've uh, been working with a little bit, especially when they came out with their gooseneck arms for their mm -hmm. uh, 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 probably best used with a, um, a Platypod Max. But uh, with that, I mean, it became a wonderful macro photography tool. And with this Platyball, it's great for landscape. But, you know, I don't do a whole lot of landscape photography. It was one of the things that I was dabbling in uh, before I kind of found my way into macro. And I wanted to do it right. So I went out and I bought, I think Enduro makes a five-way pan head that has all sorts of knobs and adjustments mm -hmm. and levers and stuff on it. And it's, it's, it had that top rotational plate. And I thought that would be very useful. And it would be if it was easy to use. Uh, but I always found it 
so difficult to just make all of these separate adjustments. Uh, now to have that conveniently on a ball head, whether your camera has a built-in level system or you're using the indicator on the on the back of one of these devices, getting it straight. Uh, there's a little uh, circular uh, bubble level on the unit too, if I remember correctly. Uh, to just get it perfect and then swing the camera around horizontally or vertically, as you yeah, said, yeah. I think it's very useful. And I'm actually surprised that nobody's done it before now. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, not only is it uh, a solid piece of work, I mean, I'll say it's incredibly well built, but, you know, the, the, the whole concept of being able to hold a ball head in one hand, adjust it to any position that you want, much like, you know, the old pistol grips that they used to make. Yeah, but uh, those things would fall apart. Yeah, they had okay. no resiliency, and they never locked in as well as you would. No, like. but I mean, if you if you take a pistol grip and put it on steroids, you, you could get close to what a platy ball is. But a platy ball is definitely so much more superior. I mean, it's just incredible, and the weight bearing capacity. You know, put. I don't know. I think the uh, the claim right now is twenty two pounds or ten kilos. Uh, you know, in. <laughs> Uh, and and I've tried it out, and the the thing will not budge. I mean, you just leave it there for hours on end, and there's absolutely no deviation whatsoever. So right, I, and, and I'm so very because happy. The- because it's a ratcheting system, right? You press the lock button, but you press it multiple times and it gets more and more locked depending mm-hmm. on how heavy your camera is or uh, you know how sturdy you need it to be. I, I remember having it all the way unlocked and then pressing the button once and it would still give you a little bit of a, a, a friction movement if you wanted to fine tune things a little bit. Yep. And then you could press it again and get yourself much more uh, stably locked down. Yeah, and the so. same kind of you know ratchet locking mechanism is also there for the... Uh, the clamp to hold the the L plate or you know the base plate of your camera. Yep. So I mean everything is you know designed so that it can be knobless. It is easy to use and all with one hand. I mean that's that's where the real yeah. thrill is. So it's fun to have you working on that project, Shiv. And I'm very curious to hear what your opinions of of the latest round of of prototypes that will be available at WPPI. So anybody that's going to be at that event, uh, be sure you go and check it out. Yeah, I mean they th- that's one event, and then for people who are in the European uh, listening pool to your podcasts. Um, the TPS, which is the photography show in Birmingham next month, uh, we will have both the models of the Platyball Elite and Ergo at that show, as well as the rest of the Platyball family of products. So there's an opportunity for all your listeners to have a all right. touch and That's feel. Awesome. Of course. Yeah. And well, it's, it's the kind of thing that it's really hard to fully appreciate from a spec list or from, uh, you know, somebody's written experience, you know, get your hands on this stuff uh, as best you can, and you'll really see the value in it. Um, why don't we uh, get into the stories for oh, the, absolutely. Uh, yes. Yeah. So there's a couple of fun ones here. Uh, there's been like a bizarre amount of photographic news for February. Usually this is a very quiet time of the year. Uh, and one that kind of piqued my interest and because we both have some connections to, uh, to Panasonic is an interview that was done with uh, DP review. And, uh, the, the title for this interview is clickbaity. And so I almost don't even want to say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it says Panasonic interview quote, if we stay united, I think we will survive, which sounds far more ominous than what it actually means, particularly in context. Um, but to, 
to put it uh, in some level of context, we have Panasonic that has been shaking up the industry a little bit, as other mirrorless transitions have also been doing. Uh, they've rolled out the S-series bodies in the last year, year and a bit, uh, and I've had my opportunity to use pretty well all of them, and I've been enjoying that experience. In fact, they're some of the best cameras that I've ever used. Um what stood out from you in this interview? And then maybe we can go back and forth on some of these ideas. Well, this, this really, you know, some of the, the statements that were made, I think, are, are very apt and very uh, timely. Because I think, you know, to survive is not what it is. It's really to succeed. And, and if you are going to succeed in this market, uh, given the fact that, you know, there have been a few demises that have taken place. Uh, you you need to partner up, and I, you know, sort of back when I was working in the computer industry, we always said, if you build good partnerships and if you build those relationships, they become long term, and not only are they long term, but they really help you solidify your position in uh, in the client base, in the marketplace. So, to a great extent, what comes out of this interview is that the relationship between Sigma, Panasonic, and the relationship with Leica is extremely important. Now, you know, think about it. Leica is probably one of the oldest manufacturers of cameras, and they're yep. still there. Um, you know, Panasonic and Leica have had a relationship. They've done a, you know, a lot of joint ventures and joint programs, but Sigma just came into the fray last year. Uh, I don't know how long they've been in negotiations to start the alliance, but really you know, the announcement was last year in, uh, what was it, February, in fact, exactly a year ago. I remember I was in Austin for the, for the launch uh, when, when they were talking about this. So the real thing that comes out is th there was a statement that kind of struck me as very interesting is that others will join this alliance. And I'm, I'm kind of curious to know who are these others who might join this alliance? I mean, where does this thing fit? Clearly, it's not going to be one of the key players as we see them today. No, I, Canon and Nikon aren't going to be jumping yeah. in board. But uh, if you look at some of the periphery, like we had an announcement just today that uh, Venus Optics and um, uh, Yongnuo have joined the Micro Four Thirds Alliance, which is, uh, there's more players in that space and it's less tightly controlled than mm -hmm. uh, the L-Mount Alliance, of course. But you could have some of those third-party uh, lens manufacturers come in, so long as they're not stepping on the toes of Sigma. And generally, they don't. I mean, they're less expensive and entirely different class of lens product. But it would be fun to see that. In fact, I just got in the mail uh, the other day. It's not, I, at least I don't think it's an official lens partner, but um, OPC Optics, who uh, now owns the Meyer Optic brand of cameras, mm -hmm. have just re-released the Trio Plan 100. Now it's the Mark II, or, well, from the modern uh, re revisions anyhow. And my copy is a native L-mount. So even if you're not necessarily a partner per se, you can still produce products for that mount. Novoflex, the German manufacturer, um, they have an adapter that lets me uh, natively mount uh, microscope objectives onto my L-mount cameras. And they also make a, an auto bellows system, which is like a variable length extension tube. And, you know, that's the only extension well, tube and, that you can and, get and for that platform have, right yeah, now. Absolutely. Um, 
so I, th- there's all these other peripheral companies that are kind of coming in uh, and making this work. But back to the point of it being an alliance and partnerships being helpful for uh, succeeding. Uh, look at companies that have gone at their own on their own uh, private ventures. Nikon, uh, the Nikon One system, that's no more. Uh, the EOS M series of cameras from Canon. Uh, the writing's on the wall that that's not going to be around for much longer. If anything is in the pipeline to be produced, I'm sure it still will be, but I don't think that's long for this world either. Uh, because they're kind of going away in isolation in a tiny little niche that nobody else is, is going to be touching. Um And so when you have these larger uh, companies that kind of uh, bind themselves together around a common goal, that's helpful for anybody that buys into that system, I think. Well, I completely agree. And I think if you you look at, you know, the relationship in the micro four thirds world, uh, the micro four thirds is, I would say, is more of a standard. And it's, you know, been created so that everybody can participate. I mean, black magic uses micro four thirds so does you know a bunch of other companies so anybody can make products that would fit the micro four thirds world Uh, it was never created as an alliance or a partnership or a a relationship entity i mean even though olympus and panasonic were the two you know initial entrepreneurs for this particular product line it was never an olympus panasonic partnership it was you know, two competing products, which they still are. So the the Leica, you know, framework as far as bodies are concerned and lenses are concerned and their interchangeability, you're dealing with two different price points. And I think it gives the opportunity for the photo snob to be continue <laughs> to be snobbish and the photographer to have a great product to play with. I mean, I think that's that's brilliant i well and if if you like like sensibilities and design of a camera you can buy the leica sl or sl2 and put a panasonic lens on it or, or a sigma lens for that matter i mean Absolutely. i love that interchangeability yeah. or if you've invested in uh the lumix s1 uh s1r whatever camera you've got and uh sigma eventually we hope will come out with a foveon full frame sensor we know that's been delayed um but you already would have a suite of equipment that you could maybe mm-hmm. rent one for a weekend and uh and have some fun with it and so that interchangeability oh, i think is, yeah. is very useful um just to, to talk a, a few numbers that they've mentioned within this interview um that uh to quote it, uh, how much uh, market share uh, do we have? It fluctuates month to month, but in the $3,000 slash 3,000 euro price range, we've gained roughly a 10% market share globally. And that's the result that we were hoping for. And that's actually a substantial number. I mean, they're, they're a player amongst many others, especially established players like Sony. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're going to have to be getting that market share from the other players too. And I'm sure that Canon and Nikon are not at a zero point in this either. So that kind of eats away at whatever, uh, well, pretty well, Sony had the whole pie uh, in this. Now everything, everybody's kind of carving out their different section of it and continuing to evolve. And either way, Don, I think it makes a lot of sort of positive, as I say, it makes a positive statement. Two reasons. It's a dollar value, right? $3,000 marketplace. Now, They never said $3,000 mirrorless marketplace, $3,000 marketplace. Does that also uh, 
indicator penetration into the $3,000 DSLR marketplace? I think so. I mean, that's how yeah, I would so, interpret it. And if I, if, if, well, if you interpret it that way, then it's even more substantial. Right. Yeah. So, and, and this is not, this is not a small number. $3,000 is not what everybody goes out and spends on a camera. And admittedly, Panasonic has said that we don't have really a mid-range product at this point. Uh, and they, they state, I think that they're hoping to, to come out with something with a lower price point as well to uh, appeal to a different market. But if they can come in at that price point, that's, that's a statement of, investment it's not a toy at that point it's definitely a tool and you don't invest in a tool um that you don't think is going to succeed and carry you forward uh Mm -hmm. you know if if people had any questions or misgivings about this i think that that number would be much lower because it would be harder to say yes this is a safe bet um so i and it's you know looking at some of the other numbers their s1h sales have exceeded their expectations um probably about 20 to 30 percent of s1 customers are purchasing the firmware upgrade uh for l log and other additional Mm -hmm. video features in there and so again their uh, their pedigree within the cinema space is definitely carrying this forward for them as well however Shiv, I know you have an S1R, and I have one as well. It, it's the best stills camera that I've ever used. The market for that, however, is really pushed up against uh, Sony with the uh, A7R4, and there's a lot of really good, solid competition in that space. So who knows where those numbers exactly are. But uh, looking at this as a whole, I think... Uh, if anybody was unsure of how this alliance was going to shake out, this basically says, oh, we're making every solid approach that we possibly can, and uh, it's only getting better from here. I mean, I don't want to sound like a, you know, like a slash Panasonic fanboy, but there is one thing that keeps me very, very alive as far as photography is concerned is the quality of the glass. Yes. To me, that is exceptional. And yeah, Sony makes very good glass. I'm not going to dispute that. But uh, the, the whole branding or what I call a statement of approval from Leica on the Pro Series lenses, the full-frame Pro Series lenses, is huge. And, and you can actually see a difference. I mean, you, you take a 2470 lens or you take a 7200 lens and you compare the quality of the glass and the quality of you know the the way the image is rendered compare that to the Leica brand oh the Leica stamped approved lenses it's there's a huge difference and to me I think that's what makes the S1R such an exceptional product well, you know, even going back into antiquity, one of my favorite lenses, because I love unusual niches in photography, uh, is the Leica Stemar, which was a uh, circa 1954 stereo 3D lens designed mm-hmm. for their M-series rangefinders. And I've modified one to fit on my S1R. And uh, it's it's not a very complex lens design, uh, you know, based on you know, the era of, of, of optics and what have you, but it's still tack sharp today. And, you know, if they had it right then, it's only getting better from there. Yeah. Now, uh, to be fair, um, any lens might start to show... Um, its imperfections when you turn on a high resolution mode and uh so with the uh, s1r it's 187 megapixels 
And yeah, if you pixel peep and zoom in on that, you might see the tiniest little bit of chromatic aberration. You might see um, some slight softness in the corners on even the best engineered lens because you're kind of pushing up against the limits of physics at that point. And it's mm-hmm. really hard to, to get around that. Um, but we're still seeing those limits constantly being pushed yeah, from every manufacturer. It's not just one. Um, but if if you want to go in and have the utmost quality control, I mean, go to a, a Zeiss, a Leica, even Sigma's art lenses are remarkable for their price. The value is just incredible there. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, you talk about um, lenses and Leica lenses and antiquity. I mean, the Tumbar. Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that was their F3.5 or F4 lenses, yeah. I think. I mean, yeah. it, I mean, the quality is so unique that there has been no lens that can replicate what that lens does. Yeah. You know, so And if you're if you're after a specific look, this is why a lot of cinematographers love playing with vintage lenses mm-hmm. because when you have that look and you apply it to motion, it creates a feeling or a mood that is hard to replicate in any other way. You know, there's this I have all right here in fact. You know, this is a 50 millimeter like a Sumicron, right? F2 mm-hmm. lens. To me, I don't think I'd go anywhere without this lens. It just, <laughs> it's so small, it's so compact. Now, compare this with the 50 millimeter Panasonic. You can see the difference. It's huge. But right. is this lens? But the, the, the tiny little M series Sumicron lenses were designed around a rangefinder. They couldn't be big and bulky because otherwise they would block the viewfinder uh, or, or the, the rangefinder window. The rangefinder, nobody would buy them. <laughs> well, exactly. So, I mean, they were designed around a specific principle of being the yeah. best quality in the smallest package. Uh, and that's kind of their pedigree there. But um, it's interesting to see how that has shaken up now that we're sort of a, a year and a bit in, and uh, there's bound to be more announcements from every partner within this oh, space. Sure, sure. And I am personally happy that third-party vendors for things like bellows and purely mechanical lenses and what have you have now just started to hit the market within mm-hmm. the space. Um, and now one other thing related to that is we've got... Um, uh, a video, which I, I'm not sure if you watched the video here, but Panasonic has demonstrated a viewfinder to correct color blindness. Uh, so for those that aren't familiar, uh, probably just under 10% of men worldwide suffer from some form of color blindness. The numbers... Know, the, the 10% admit that they suffer. I think well, more. right. True enough. <laughs> the, the, the number, I think, is much less than 1% for women. But yeah. Um, yeah, regardless, there's a, a huge portion of people in the world that suffer from colorblindness. Um, and there have been glasses that you could wear. Uh, Inchroma is the uh, the most uh, popular company that mm-hmm. produce glasses that filter out specific wavelengths of light to kind of rebalance the sensitivities of your eyes. Well, at least on a one-off here, I'm not sure if this is something that would ever go into production, but it, it appears to me that Panasonic has built in similar types of filters into the viewfinder of a camera in order to rebalance the output based on the wavelengths of light uh, on uh, a photographer. Uh, <clears throat> I'm just trying to find his name here. Yeah, he's, an Indian, in- he's an Indian photographer. And actually, the, the collaboration is with an Indian company to do this. Um, and, he's and like Chaturi, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, found, I found the whole concept to be most interesting. But what I don't know how universal it can be. Or would these 
viewfinders have to be tuned to individuals based upon the extent of their colorblindness. I believe uh, it, that when you're buying glasses, it has to be tuned to you specifically, right. although so, I've never gone through the process myself. So if, if that's the case, then what one would need is some sort of a tool that would measure your color blindness, and you would send those readings over to the manufacturer, who would then build the viewfinder for you. Right. You know, so, but it's conceptually, I mean, it gives people who are into photography a new opportunity to basically understand what it is that they're photographing. I mean, they, they take photographs, but they don't know what colors they're taking. I mean, now, Right, and... You, you could always wear a pair of those color-correcting glasses and look through your viewfinder if the effect is going to be the same. It might not. But this brought up a question to me, Shiv. Um, could you not do this in software? Could you not? I mean, the, uh, the LCD screen and the viewfinder are emitting colors, yes. But in order to perceive specific colors, for example, magenta, uh, magenta as a color doesn't exist. You have to emit both... Um, violet and uh and and a, a deep red at the same time in order for magenta to be generated our eyes kind of trick that color into existence and so if the if the technology to display color has the ability to uh you know use wavelengths to some degree in order to emit specific colors would it be possible to then design uh, a light emitting device itself but in order that, to correct isn't that this. What, what is being done? Because the these are EVFs, right? These are electronic viewfinders, and they are enhancing the the colors, the, the spectrum individually based upon what your eye can or cannot see. So I don't believe it's it's uh, an optical correction. It's really a software based product I'm well they, sure they, they are filtering it down they're filtering it down uh to to correct for this with that filter but why couldn't it be done without the filter and just modify the output of the the lcd itself in order to have the right colors it's never been done by anybody so i in the research that i could uh you know uh, figure out here ready if it hadn't been done by anybody, there, yeah. there's an answer here that I don't have the the information on. Like there, there must be a reason why this hasn't been attempted before. But do you think one could start a Kickstarter and have people fund the research? I possibly. Po you'd have a lot of people interested yeah, based on yeah. the number of people that are affected by this. Um, I did find that uh, the high-end monitor company ESO, uh, or ISO, however it's pronounced, mm -hmm. um, they have a mode in some of their monitors that can reduce the color output to make it look like you're seeing something as if you're colorblind. Uh, so if somebody does have normal vision, but they're doing graphic design work for billboards or for outdoor advertising, you want to make sure that anybody with colorblindness is going to to be seeing things properly so they can go that way yeah, it's but backwards right yeah but I, I i don't know why you can't go in the other direction no i'm sure i'm sure it can be done and you know i mean the the question really is how much computational power are you going to need to do this and you know how much bigger does the camera become because now you need all this additional computational capability. I, I don't know. I think it's just a lookup table based on the information be. provided, just uh, based on how you modify the colors to diminish some while you strengthen others. Or, you know, people comment on this, uh, on this episode and uh, give me your opinions as to why I might be right or wrong because I think that there is a greater discussion to be had here. Uh, create, create a few LUTs and... <laughs> 
<laughs> the luck does see, the job. And and see what works. Yeah. Um, okay, other big news. Uh, again, from the, the big players in the industry here, we have the Nikon D6. You call uh, that big official- news? Well, it's a big camera. Uh, <laughs> big camera, yes. But is it big news? <laughs> well, we're going to talk about that. Now, the official specifications and some sample images. Um, so the clear successor of the D5 uh, in the same line of the very high-end built-in grip uh, sports shooting cameras that are kind of heralded as the the highest end or at least the highest priced cameras in any line from the traditional manufacturers. This goes uh, up to play against the Canon 1DX Mark III and potentially you could compare it to what Sony is offering in their A9 series as well. These cameras are not for everybody, but they do push the industry forward, especially in the developing of technologies that trickle down into more consumer-facing products. My problem here is and we talked about this kind of when we uh, when we were talking a few episodes ago about the 1DX Mark III. Um, is there even a place for a camera like this anymore? I mean, I understand that you've got a lot of old pros that are, are going to buy this, but the number of people that are buying a, a D5, D6 class of camera is not going to be growing anymore, right? So you're right. Not growing anymore, but what have they done with this camera? Think about it. It's a camera that is really not much different than the 5. Really not much different, okay? Same sensor. Um, I believe it's slower as far as frame rate is concerned. And in the silent mode, it's even slower. One would assume that in the silent mode, you'd be using the an electronic shutter rather than a mechanical shutter, and maybe you'd be able to boost speed, but no, you can't. The From the specs, I mean, I don't know anybody who's actually used the camera to qualify this, but from the specs, they've done one thing which is, in my opinion, useless. <laughs> What's that? They put two CFAST cards in the camera, I believe it's CF Express. Oh, CF Express, uh, sorry. Which there is a difference there, but yeah. My apologies. That's even faster, right? The CF yes. Express is even faster. But what are they going to do? The, the fast cards need fast output. The camera is yeah, not well, going to be producing any fast output. I mean, it's 14 frames a second, 20 megapixels each. Is not a lot of data to feed into those cards. Right. Uh, when I was shooting with the 1DX Mark II, which was doing, I believe, 12 or 14 frames per second with a mm-hmm. mechanical shutter, uh, I was using a CFast memory card, which is uh, much slower than the fastest that CF Express, I mean, by orders of magnitude. Mm-hmm. And I never filled my buffer there anyhow. Um, so yeah, you've got that huge throughput, but that's only useful if you have a, um, you know, maybe a 30, 40 megapixel camera, not 21. Now, I or get it. Or if you're they, doing they, 6K, 8K video, where you sure. need that kind of throughput. So Not, not I mean, even. I mean, when I've got the S1H here, I can do 6K video, and it's not going to chew through that much data. It uses SD cards for that matter. Yeah. Um, so I, I know that CF Express is just an evolution of the XQD format, and that makes it backwards compatible to XQD cards, which might be less expensive. Um, but the bottleneck here, I think, is the fact that 
it's not much better than the D5. You already said that, Shiv. I mean, 14 frames per second, that's great. But, you know, in the electronic shutter mirrorless camera market, that number means a heck of a lot less, mm-hmm. especially once we're just on the cusp of this era of what I assume to be a global shutter across the industry within the next right. generation or two of cameras. Well, the, the, the other thing that really sort of tickled my non-fancy and I call it non-fancy. We're looking at cameras today that are approaching 100% coverage as far as the sensor is concerned for focus points. Right. right. The accuracy as seen by a number of even Panasonic's competitors is based on the fact that you can focus nearly to the edge of the frame. And we're looking at, you know, 200, 240, 400 plus cross type focus points, etc., etc., etc. And the D6 has actually reduced the number of focus points from the D5. It has compressed them into a tighter configuration. And you have all that empty space that you can't focus on. And this is supposed to be a camera that is going to grab focus in a sports environment where most things enter the frame from the side. Yeah, you need to track the subject through the frame. It it doesn't matter if you want to try to keep your subject in the middle of the frame. You have to understand what happens when you've got a super telephoto lens on your camera and you're trying to pan with a subject that is going to invariably fall left and right of center to Mm -hmm. uh, to different degrees based on just the movement and the chaos of the scene. Um, So I I do like the fact that it's a bit more condensed around the middle. If you are very good at what you do, um, then you might be able to keep the subject in there. But you want the camera to be a tool to help uh kind of smooth things out those old pros are getting shaky now shiv oh yes they are (laughs) (laughs) Uh, let's Uh, talk about price point as well uh $6,500 US this is not a cheap camera I mean what else could you get in the industry for $6,500 that might outperform it in different ways I I've got a suspicion that uh, anybody looking for a camera of this caliber is going to be looking to the Sony A9 II and uh, the ability for it to, I, I don't know in real world scenarios how the, the focus compares. Uh, we still have to see that. But uh, I think that would be the better choice overall in almost every category. Well, I mean, you've got, you've got the camera is basically a $6,000 boat anchor. For the people, <laughs> for the people who have a D five and want to upgrade, I, I mean, I don't see any new entries into a product of this caliber. Uh, they're going to go with where technology is, and unfortunately, I don't see any enhanced technology in the D six. Oh, but Shiv, you're forgetting the fact that it has a 15% increase in transmission speed over its gigabit Ethernet port, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. which is, which is a, I mean, yes, it's a statistic that is marginally bigger, but it's not going to make any significant difference. Uh, it might delay the transmission of an image by a fraction of a second or two over the wire to a press gallery somewhere, but if if you're shooting at the Olympics and you need that image out one second before your competition, then there's your answer. But I don't think anybody was even asking for that. Well, uh, hopefully there's going to be some Ethernet, wired Ethernet ports available in those boxes where the photographers sit. 
Well, there have been traditionally in the past. Let's hope that continues. But you know, everybody's switching over to the wireless technology because it's getting equally as fast now. Right. And 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 what are those what are those speeds of those cables? Cat five? Cat well, five is not cat gonna five, cut it. Well, Cat5 can handle uh, gigabit. It can't handle anything faster than that. Right. But if you have more than one operator, uh, you know, camera operator that's using the same uh, the same system, then it well, can be clogged down pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, now, when you've got, uh, they, they don't specify speeds, but they do say uh, 2.4 and 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi 4, mm-hmm. uh, or um, uh, the traditional uh, wireless transfer using the WT6 wireless transmitter. Again, I don't know why Canon and Nikon are always adding in this extra transmitter. That should be fast enough for almost everybody in, in these particular scenarios. At least uh, the way that they've been traditionally able to be configured, you could transmit just JPEG files uh, over the Wi-Fi while you have the raw files being recorded to the memory card as well. So we'll see. Uh, so, I think no, that this one, camera... The one technology upgrade, which I will give them credit for. I mean, my, my phone does it. It's been doing it for years. And my camera on my phone does it. And it's been doing it for years. But they can now adjust the clock on the camera via GPS. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, you know, that's... Crowning achievement right there. I think uh, that's that's worth the upgrade. Period. But you know, you, you know, <laughs> Don, not not to be not to be a, an absolutely nasty kind of person, but I would love to have you bring on a Nikon fanboy and have them respond to the D six. You know, maybe wait yeah. till, till till the product is actually out there, and they've been able to get a hold of it and test it, and compare it to a D five, and let's see, you know, how much they fall in love with this thing. Ergonomics and usability. I mean, those two things are hard to determine based on a spec sheet, right? You know, if if the camera is simply easier to use and function and it becomes almost like uh, muscle memory with more or easier access to customizable buttons and all that, then that could be the reason why you get the shot or you miss it because you had to fumble through a menu or the button was not in the right place or you just couldn't operate the camera fast enough. So there's more to the story. From the pictures, and I don't have detailed diagrams but from looking at the pictures of the camera it's not much different than the d5 no no well and i think that's the same thing with canon in their 1d series you know everything has to be as if you've used one before you could pick it up and know where everything is you can't make drastic changes you can do subtle things but you can't reinvent it uh, from one generation to the next all right. Well, um, this is kind of a fun tie-in too, because you see Nikon is trying to get their uh, their highest caliber camera out there on the market, and they're probably pushing as much as they possibly can into this body. Where Sony, on the other hand, Sony reportedly cuts planned mirrorless camera features to free up hardware for the PS5, the PlayStation 5, which they are, uh, you know, trying to make as good as it possibly can in a highly um, uh, competitive video game market. And, uh, you know, Sony makes a lot of parts for a lot of different cameras. Uh, You know, I remember seeing somebody take apart a Canon Rebel and it used a Sony LCD screen in it. And so um, they're they're making parts for everybody in the the industry, not just themselves, but there's only so many parts to go around, especially when you're trying to cram as much DRAM as possible to offload data from the sensor as quickly as you possibly can, uh, which can, you know, improve uh, performance in, in a number of ways. Well, 
Sony is no longer bringing their A game. Maybe this is like a hint of hubris of some kind where they really think, you know, even if we, you know, cut corners and slack a little bit on our next generation, we are still going to be the top dog. We don't need to push forward to any uh, extreme degree anymore. We already got the crown. Doesn't look like anybody's going to take it back from us. What say you? I kind of agree with that. They do have the crown as far as the senses are concerned. And, you know, the DRAM, the intermediate DRAM, as I call it, sensor to DRAM, DRAM to output, uh, how, how critical is it? And in how many cameras will it be critical? If you really think of it, it's on the high end, and that's where you need that kind of throughput and that kind of quick release of the sensor information. Sony still doesn't have a global sensor per se available in the consumer market. Uh, probably have something in their labs. But I think till that comes out, they can, in fact, use the manufacturing capacity to enhance and improve another product line. And I think that's what they've alluded to. My other question is, is this a statement made for an actual technical interpretation to be product for product or is it got something to do with a potential factory issue because china is in the kind of you know trouble that it is with uh with all the virus that's going the, on the covid 19 coronavirus yeah. Yeah. yeah so i mean i we've been hearing rumblings that that uh that that health issue in china is hurting all manufacturing industries mm-hmm. in the area uh, and to varying different degrees I, I don't know the specifics but that could be a part of this as well now um if if you look at sony though they have a great number of different industries. I mentioned they make components, they make consumer products in just about every class. Uh, same thing as, as companies like Panasonic. You've got so many different subdivisions within uh, the organization. Um, does this tell me, though, that you know their camera market is not the one they care the most about? And I think that's what it says. And I don't think that makes it scary in any way. It's not like they're going to go away. It's still a profitable market for them, I'm sure. Um, But it also means that their highest level of profit centers are elsewhere. And that becomes just kind of a bit of writing on the wall that you might want to pay attention to. Because if they're starting to cannibalize uh, features from this in order to make other markets more profitable, what happens if the bottom falls out of the industry? What happens if the sales dry up to a point where they say, well, well, we had a good run of it. Uh, we're going to just drop this and move on to other things where the money is, uh, rather than keep it along through a decline, hoping that it comes back. So, Don, go back a few years. How many products has Sony come up with and dropped? They, How many no media formats food. only, right? Well, just, just be, I mean, but that's one thing. Sony has been known as the entrepreneur of dropping things. They, they, they can do it, and they've done it over and over again. Today, they're sitting on the throne as far as cameras are concerned. Okay, They, they have... They've crowned themselves king. Yes, they have. So if they cannibalize for another product and enhance its position in the marketplace, I see no reason why they shouldn't do that. Because 
Remember when Canon and Nikon used to try and leapfrog each other? Yep. Right. I mean, it was always, you know, now we're better than you and then Canon, and now we're better than you. But, you know, in the past few years, there's not many people who've come up and said we're better than Sony. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe maybe I'm reading too much into it. Um, yeah. Uh, I, would, I, 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 would, I tend I to do that. With, <laughs> I, I, t- I take this one with a pinch of salt because I think there's... It's it's probably uh, addressing capacity and and addressing where best to uh, you know posture as far as manufacturing is concerned, uh, not upsetting the apple cart. I don't think this is going to be detrimental to what they're doing in the camera industry. Uh, well, time will tell. Uh, I think that they will still keep their crown. That that's my suspicions, even mm-hmm. though that they are not giving it their total A game here. Um, the installed user base um, and the price point and features that are already established within that brand are going to be hard to usurp. Uh, It might happen someday. Um, But I think that just by sheer market share alone, that has the momentum to to get them through any of these particular issues. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I would agree. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on to uh, the final story, uh, which I always save an interesting one for the end. From F-Stoppers, a food delivery company is encouraging a hashtag which enables it to claim copyright of any photograph. Okay, uh, let's unpack this. Basically, if you use the hashtag, uh, which is the name of the the company, the company is um, uh, Deliveroo. Uh, If you use hashtag Deliveroo, then uh, based on the terms that they have set out on their website, that you grant them, this is common language, a royalty, fully paid, non-exclusive, transferable, perpetual, irrevocable, assignable, sub-licensable, worldwide license to use, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically, they can do anything that they want with it in perpetuity and you've got no say. Um, But that that sounds like a contract that you would have to sign in in a way that is far more intensive than just, you know, using a hashtag. Where do you fall on this? Because this is not the only company that's doing this. Well, I, I personally, I think, you know, you think about Facebook as an example. You post something on Facebook and there's a, the people claim that Facebook owns your image. Uh, you know, it, it, there were lots of sites like this that basically laid claims that they could do whatever they want with you. The reality is that the copyright, unless you transfer your copyright, the copyright is yours. When you take that image, whether you write into it with the C symbol or you put into the metadata, it doesn't matter. That is your image. By saying you put a hashtag, which is external, and there is no contractual obligation per se, the image doesn't become somebody else's. It can't. I think in the well, court of law, in the court of law, this would fail miserably. If you enter a photo contest, oftentimes they have language like this. Sometimes very draconian, sort of like this. Other times they take just the rights that they require in order for them to publish your photo as a winning mm-hmm. image. They need some rights to copy your work. And you don't assign you still on the copyright, but you have to give a license in some way yes. uh, to uh, to then use that license work. License for uh, use, in- license for promotion, license to whatever. 
Yeah, exactly. And so th- this is a, they specifically use the word license. Uh, so they have the license while you might still own the copyright. They've got a license to do anything and everything under the sun with that particular image. Um, if you're deliberately entering a photo contest, if you're signing a contract, if you're doing anything like that, I, I think that there is some legal grounds. But if you're just using a hashtag, the, in the comments, there's a great one from Mark Harris. He says, maybe I should start a pressed coffee company and then declare free use of any images marked hashtag no filter. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, it's it's kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it is the brand. I don't have... Um, a problem with this if you have a very very clearly marked hashtag that is kind of stating like uh you know hashtag i give my rights to deliveroo or something that you know you're kind of effectively signing a contract when you state something like that but just to have a single word even if that brand is available in one country who knows if there's another brand in another country that uses the same word right Mm -hmm. um and I think that there's a, a certain generality here that, um, you know, if you want to use people's images in social media, uh, just ask them, you know, yeah, I, mean, I mean, yeah. I, how yeah. hard is that? <laughs> you, you know, it's, it's one of those things where if, if you want my image, ask me, I'm not going to say no, because if you are so big, and if you would be kind enough to just give me a little statement that says this image by, I'll be very happy. You know, well, look at the promotion. I mean, it's... it's <laughs> yeah. But he, here's my take on that. I, I'd say yes. You know, please uh, use my image. Uh, here's what it will cost you to do so. I mean, the person on the other end of their social media accounts getting paid the brand is clearly a success mm-hmm. uh, and they've got a marketing budget, uh, probably promoting their own posts and whatever else on social media and Facebook. Yep. And you can spend many thousands of dollars a month just on that promotion uh, platform that's built into Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and so many other of these platforms. So then why would the photographer themselves get the short end of the stick and just get like a, an at mention or something? No, I think that the photographer should get paid Um I'm not going to say an exorbitant amount, but at least something you are respecting their work enough to want to use it. So, you know, build in something more than just a thank you and a mention. Uh, I'm not going to dispute that at all, because a lot of this really is not for photographers per se. It's going to be for the guy who takes his selfies, the guy's enough cell phone, you know, he wants to use the image and they want to, you know, he'll hashtag it, it'll get used. A person who's a professional photographer is not going to put that hashtag on there. Well, okay. Now, to be fair, I mean, we were talking uh, politely about the uh, the Panasonic Lumix brand earlier, and I know that they have a system that they've commented on some of my photographs. Um, mm-hmm. We're saying, hey, we absolutely love your image. Do you want to put um, this particular hashtag? I can't remember what it was off the top of my head, but it was very specific to that. But in doing so, you have to agree to our uh, our terms. And then they provided a link specifically to that. And so they made it very clear that if you're going to use this hashtag, it's governed by these terms and you are giving us some rights, which is a little bit more clear than what we're seeing here. Um, So that was being geared towards photographers. uh, And some photographers would just like their work to have a greater audience. Now, 
can a company, any company say, hey, by the way, we'll pay you 50 bucks. Um, anybody photographer or not might just say, yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, within a limited context, right? Not this worldwide perpetual sublicensable mm-hmm. and like this blanket everything kind of way, uh, but give it a limited use, give it a couple of dollars associated with it, with a social media campaign. They're spending that money anyhow, uh, and make fans in the process. What you know, what you said, Don, is exactly the the concept that should be applied. Panasonic came to you and said, Don, we see this image that you have. We believe it has a lot of potential value, et cetera, et cetera. Hashtag it. Here are the terms and conditions, and you can agree or disagree. Nobody's stopping you from disagreeing, right? Right. Now, this particular company says you put the hashtag on and we own it. Well, you know what? Put the hashtag on, come back to me and say, you like the image, you want to use it, and let's negotiate something. Or it's a freebie, and you'd like to use it as a freebie, and then I can say yes or no. Yeah. I mean, the the company could even just like offer services to the people that use it. You don't even have to pay them, but just give them a discount or give them something for free. Um in the case of Panasonic, though, I mean, to be completely transparent, they have legitimately licensed images from me for global usage, and they've paid me for that. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not painting any company like that in, in a bad light. That's how it should be done. And uh, and I think that well, I mean, companies- a- any of us as, as ambassadors get that. You know, we were paid for our images. We're paid to to create content, and and that's that's only fair. But if I was to take an image. With a Panasonic camera, I'm basically structuring the display of that image with hashtags that indicate what I used and how I used it. Absolutely. And if Panasonic then wants to, as an ambassador, under my contractual terms, I'm basically giving them the right to use it, which is yeah. fair. I mean, I signed that contract, but I haven't signed any contract with this what, food deliveroo or whatever D- it is. Deliveroo, Yes. Yeah. So I I think that I would love to see this company uh, under the terms that they think apply in court, use somebody's image and that person then take them to court over copyright infringement and see what that uh, deliberation actually uh, shakes out to be. I don't think they would win. I'm not a lawyer, uh, but I think that this is shaky ground. Those were your words at best. uh, And I would love to see some precedent set in any country. And we would talk about that more when that comes. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it'll be worth keeping an eye on in the future to see yes. when this thing hits. All right, let's, uh, let's talk about uh, picks of the week. But before we do, Shiv, where can people find you online and, uh, and all of your beautiful photographs? Um, everything is on www.shivverma.com. And there are links from there to Instagram, to Facebook, and by the way, I've just started a YouTube channel, which is still in its infancy, first few episodes. But, uh, you know, people are interested. There is a little bit going on in YouTube, too. Um, and uh, by all means, my email is there. My phone number is there. Give me a call if you ever need anything. All right. Yeah, he's easy to get in touch with, folks. Um and uh, and if you're at WPPI, I'm sure you'll be able to run into him there as well because you're going to be there. Uh, oh, yes. You're leaving yes. tomorrow, right? No, I'm leaving on Saturday, and I'll okay. be there through, uh, I believe, Friday. 
Perfect. All right. Picks of the week. Uh, what do you have for me? Well, I have two. And one we've talked about at, uh, at length, but I do want to say something more about the S1R. And in fact, I want to say a lot about all of the Panasonic cameras that are capable of doing high-resolution um, images. So the S1R is my pick of the week, but it's specifically for high-res. And the reason I bring that up is that, again, since this is a geeky podcast, we need to be a little geeky. <laughs> Cameras use the Bayer pattern in their senses. So you have two greens, one blue, one red, and then ad infinitum that is repeated based upon the number of megapixels you're going to capture. And the, the pattern that they're arranged is called the Bayer pattern, and the yeah. filter is called a color filter array. There's different patterns, right? Fuji uses the X-Trans right. arrangement of these things, but it's still a color filter array. It's a color filter array. Now, let's say you have 100% red in front of your camera. Your green and blue pixels, let's put them that way, in the Bayer pattern, Photosites would be the technical term, yeah, but yes. Yeah. They're basically quiet, inactive. Mm -hmm. So if you really look at a quadrant of four pixels, there's only one pixel in that quadrant that is actually a receptor to the red. Yep. So in your 40 megapixel array, there's only 10 megapixels of red being captured. Right. Now so you know where I'm getting to. I, I know where you're getting to. Uh, so, so now when you do a high-res image, the sensor is moving, and in so moving, it is actually shifting the position of that red receptor to be able to capture all of the red rather than just 25% of the red. Now, to be fair, it's going to generate a uh, an image resolution that is four times larger um, than the regular image. But if you were to scale that down to the original mm -hmm. resolution, which would be that next step, and you compare the quality of the image at the exact same overall number of pixels, um, the, the resulting uh, quality would be significantly improved. In color fidelity. Yes. And if you are looking at images with high color fidelity, shoot high res. And I'm, I'm actually putting together a video to, to demonstrate what the difference really is and how much. And it is, it is uh, quite mind-blowing. So that's my pick of the week for the, I call it my part one. Part two is the 16 to 35 millimeter f4 lens that's also an s pro series lens which i didn't think i would achieve the kind of rendition both from and and this is uncorrected as far as chromatic aberrations color fringing um, anything to do with the direct capture of bright lights, so the flaring is minimal, in fact, none. 
and the the overall barrel distortion is extremely well controlled. There's a, I mean, I noticed a slight amount of bowing on the upper part of the frame, which on the sensor would be the lower part of the sensor. But apart from that, it's an incredible lens. The only unfortunate thing is that I haven't had a single night when it hasn't been cloudy. And I <laughs> wanted to take this F4 lens out and do some astro work with it just to see how it performs, even though it's not an F2.8 or an F1 lens. But given the fact that we have higher ISO capability with the S-series, this lens might be phenomenal for astro work. So uh, await that. Those are, those are my two uh, <laughs> passions I, for I, today. I would love to see how the coma distortion um, or comma distortion, again, these things can be pronounced different ways, um, would affect that lens on a night sky image. And for yeah. those that are well, aware that's of really what distortion what I, what I want is, to do. The, the stars will kind of either turn ovular or almost like these little bat wing shapes depending yeah. on the kind of distortion that you're going to have. Uh, and that uh, is detrimental to, of course, you know, photographing the single yeah. points of light in the night sky. Some lenses are better designed for this than others. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing what your test on that would be, Shiv. Um, my, uh, my pick of the week, I don't mean to be piling on uh, Panasonic and all, but I have a tool at my disposal that, uh, that has been really fun to play with. I was shooting for a, um, a large documentary film project recently uh, and it has performed exceptionally well, um, so much so that I've actually decided to purchase one myself. Uh, I had borrowed one for the initial tests, fell in love with some of the features on the S1H that we were talking about earlier. Um, I prefer the S1R for the resolution, of course, um, but the fact that this has a completely articulating screen makes it very useful for video purposes. Um, and this is going to sound silly, but I just love the fact that the top LCD panel is black on white text uh, and, and symbolic. It just feels really slick and ergonomic. And it's a little bit bigger because the body itself is bigger with more information, easier to read. There's so many things to like about the actual mm. output of this too. I mean, oh, I'm yeah. not going to get into all of the, the minutiae. Um, but from the standpoint of making a uh, an SLR style body, into something that has very capable video features, including a little light on the front that tells you that it's recording if you're not behind the camera and a uh, record button on the front of the camera as well. Uh, it, it just kind of hits every checkbox that I would want on a camera like this. The only thing that I want improved uh, is raw video output, and that should be coming with a firmware out, uh, update at some point in the near future to my Atomos Ninja V, um, which... You're not uh, asking for too much, are you? I'm not asking for too much, but they're delivering everything. Yes. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's not a cheap camera. Uh, it's going for just the body only, about $4,000 US. But to be honest, if you have a use for something of this caliber it's going to pay for itself almost oh, immediately. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I, I had an H for for a, for a while. Um, I've had to send it back. I can't wait to get another copy. Uh, the, the H was, I believe, a prototype, so it had to go back. But uh, it, it was just a pleasure to use. I mean, incredible as far as video performance is concerned. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, it has a fan, but the fan is not in any way obtrusive. And even when it does come on, you don't really hear it. So, you know, well, and it, 
It's going to be noisy. No, it isn't. Any, any high-end cinema camera has a fan. Right, you're not going to be recording audio uh, in any high-end production environment using the built-in microphones on a camera like this. No, Those not. microphones, at best, are used just for audio syncing. Uh, at worst, yeah, they're not yeah. useful what one bit. So that the fan actually. If you could get more features into any camera and put an active cooling and just kind of kick things into high gear, I wouldn't mind that on an S1R. You know, I if this cam if the S1R was built exactly like this mm-hmm. and it had like if if this camera had a 46 megapixel sensor and somehow was also able to give me the exact same video fidelity that this has, I would pay more for it. Right. Oh, I yeah. mean, oh, yeah. uh, I just the format, I don't mind the camera being a little bit bigger and bulkier if it's going to be adding more features and, and to be more useful for me. Yeah, I mean, up the price, it. keep it below the D6 since we've been talking <laughs> yeah. about the D6. But That's right. It would be worth a little extra money. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Shiv, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so well, much for being back on. I don't want to let this much time go by before I have you back on again. No, it's always we'll, a delight we'll, to we'll chat. do it. I mean, we'll keep in touch. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for having me on. It's really been a pleasure. My pleasure. And uh, thanks to everybody who has been listening. Uh, We appreciate your opinions and feedback on every episode of Photo Geek Weekly. You can find the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. And now it's time to get out and shoot. (laughs) 